Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Laura Hassler, founder and director of Musicians Without Borders. It's a charity based in Amsterdam that uses the power of music for peace building and social change, particularly in areas of war and conflict. Now, there are many reasons why you'll be interested in Musicians Without Borders, but Laura herself has had a fascinating track record, having been active in US civil rights and peace movements from an early age. She worked for social change organisations in the US and Europe before moving to the Netherlands to develop a career as a musician and link music to social courses. So as I've been an admirer of Musicians Without Borders for some years now, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you, Laura, and thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Thank you so much, Anita, for the invitation. It's a pleasure. So I've given a, a kind of tempting flavour of you and your background, which is a fascinating read on your website. So I'd like to start there, if that's OK, by asking you to tell us a little bit more about that. How did you end up where you are today and why is it so important to you personally? Well, I grew up in outside of New York in the U.S., post-World War II. My parents were both uh, professional peace activists. You could say they both worked for an inter-religious pacifist peace organization, and they were both incredible music lovers. Now, I've often said that uh, in, in a different period of time, it's quite possible that both of them might have become professional musicians and or dancers. My mother was a wonderful dancer and loved to dance and they both loved to sing. And I grew up in a cooperative community that they started together with a few other young couples where there were many artists and there were also social activists, there were community leaders, uh, musicians, people with, with different kinds of backgrounds. It was also interreligious, it was interracial, very unusual um, place to grow up as a child. But of course, we didn't know that then, that was just our normal life. Um, so it was also a singing community and I grew up, grew up within this atmosphere. My parents' organization worked closely with Martin Luther King and his movement during the civil rights movement in the US. They were very active in the movement to protest nuclear weapons. So we were out on picket lines from the time I can remember, maybe being seven or eight years old with my parents, feeling also part of that as well and proud of it. And at the same time, always making music in this community and being encouraged to take music lessons and being in public schools. But there were wonderful music programs where we had bands and choruses and orchestras and all kinds of special projects. So I grew up with this kind of double identity for me, or at least I could say the two, my, my two legs of being, if you want, <laughs> that I've always been standing on, are on the one hand, peace building, social change, civil rights, human rights, on the other hand, the music. So during university, I, I sometimes joke that I somehow got through a, a high-level academic institution while actually for four years I was mostly um, making music and out protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, 
and community organizing. That's what I was really doing all that time. Um, So all through my life, if I was working for an organization of social change, I was the musician in the group. So I was the one leading the singing at the demonstrations or organizing musicians to join. Or if I was working as a musician, then I was trying to connect that to issues of social inclusion or social change. And when I moved to the Netherlands, um, I moved here because of a job in the peace movement, but I, at a certain point, for personal reasons, moved away from that and and went back into my music making and, and built up a career here. But that was also all about making music from different cultures, setting up choirs where women from different cultures came together to share their music and perform it together. I started uh, what was called a world music school within the local music school here, which was designed both to introduce musics from other cultures, but also to make a place which was predominantly or maybe exclusively at that point, welcoming white Dutch children and adults into their, in, into the music lessons, but to make people from different backgrounds also feel welcome. So it was all, that was, you know, okay, I'm, maybe the story's getting too long. No, but, it's absolutely fascinating. That's why I'm so quiet. <laughs> okay. So, and, and one of the many forms of music that has always fascinated me has been the folk music of Eastern Europe and especially of the Balkans. And the reason is, I guess, because of this fascination of different cultures, which I grew up with, this love of what happens when people meet across cultural lines. And so here in the Netherlands, I mean, one of the things I started doing was pulling together some people who had voices that could sing that music. So I'm talking about the folk music of Bulgaria and of a former Yugoslavia and of that region where you see sort of the, the, the rhythms and some of the vocal uh, use from from Oriental societies meeting the more Western influenced music, and you've got the music of the Roma and the, of the Jewish diaspora, all of these coming together in this area and producing these amazing, to me, amazing forms of music. So I loved singing music from the Balkans, and I did it for years, and I taught it for years. And then you had the Balkan Wars, and then we are sitting and seeing every I'm talking about in the '90s, horrible, horrible. Um, reports of burned out villages and mass graves and concentration camps and refugees and petty dictators and all of these horrible stories. And I guess, you know, the, the two legs of my past decided to stand together. I guess you could say it that way. And yeah. it was kind of an inspiration um, after a, a war memorial concert with, in which we we sang music from the Balkans during the Balkan Wars and music from different people, but different, you know, folk music and decided, well, couldn't we use this amazingly powerful art form that we have, this music that everybody in, has in their culture, everybody has, every person has in their body, the capacity to make music. Couldn't we use this as a contribution to peace building and to social change within the context of war and armed conflict. It feels almost like this work and this organization kind of chose you rather than the other way around. I was sort of thinking when I was thinking about the questions that, you know, we'd hear about your, your life journey and that you suddenly got to a point where you thought, oh, I'd like to do that. But it feels as though it chose you. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, there have been a number of times because when we started this idea, nobody took it seriously. 
Mm, I, I mean, you, yeah. funders didn't, governments didn't, people who were in traditional fields of peace building didn't. So, you know, for many years, we were just piecing it together and doing the best we could and sometimes joke, but it's the truth that the first three years that we existed as an organization, the only one working in the organization who had no salary was me because I, w I had two part-time jobs and I was leading three choirs and running singing workshops in the weekends to kind of stay alive. And then I was leading musicians without borders. <laughs> so, wow. and, you know, but somehow it, every time that it felt like we weren't going to survive, something came along and we did. Suddenly there was a contribution when, when the bank account was empty or, you know, it, so I think, yes, it did choose me. I think that's right. Yeah. And, and so where were you living when that happened, when the war started and when you decided to start doing something through music? I was living here in the Netherlands. I've been here for a long time, since 1977. Right. And I had first, when I first came, I had started um, a, a small music practice, first teaching guitar and, and folk singing to children, and then moving in from there into singing with groups, and then moving from there into leading choirs. And so I had, when, when this all started, I had a chamber choir that I was conducting. I had a, um, an a cappella group that was singing mostly Balkan music, and I had a choir of um, women from, at that point, about 21 different cultures singing together and putting that music on the stage. And I was leading our local, um, what was then called World Music Department of, of our music school, and working as a consultant in cultural diversity for the arts. Oh my goodness. <laughs> So when, when Musicians Without Borders started, it, it began in the Netherlands and you were working with people there and then you took it abroad? Yes. Well, the first idea was, could we bring the music that we knew? Could we travel? Could we somehow connect with musicians in the Balkans? But the first thing that we did, because this was during the Kosovo War, 1999, and we didn't really know enough yet. We didn't have enough contacts. We didn't have enough funding, but we had raised a little bit of money for this. And what we did was we, uh, we rented buses, coaches, and we brought teams of musicians and singers and players and donated instruments to the refugee camps that had been set up in the Netherlands to receive refugees from Kosovo. There were about 6,000 people who were given temporary refuge here. And so that's how we started. And when I think back on it, a lot of what happened just in those few months sort of laid the basis. So, you know, we just had this idea of let's take this concert and see if people enjoy it if we can bring a little bit of lightness into lives of people who've had to flee their country and are living in tents. But then a friend who was really a professional music teacher for children, he said, well, I can do workshops for children. Shall I come along? I said, sure. And he did, you know, and he made these wonderful participatory workshops with kids doing body percussion or singing. And another friend brought along 25 darabukas and did drumming workshops with children with nonverbal teaching. Now, looking back, that was the beginning of our workshop program for children. That's where it started. And, you know, we heard through the refugee authorities that there were some musicians in one of the camps and they'd lost their instruments. And one was an accordionist, another was a violinist. And there were some people who had lost their guitars. And so our accordionist said, well, I've got, you know, a second accordion. I'm happy to give that away. And our violinist said, oh, I have a violin, you know. So, so we brought these instruments along. 
and gave them to these musicians who'd lost their instruments, you know, and to see the surprise and the joy on their faces when they suddenly realized that they could actually keep these instruments after we left was unbelievable. And then they joined us for the other, you know, in the following weeks to go to play at the other, at the other refugee camps. And looking back, that was the beginning of our instrument fund, which we've been running since then, where we're collecting instruments to donate them to people who've lost them during war. So all of the sort of, you know, beginning strands were there. And then suddenly we were invited to, um, to bring our concert, our musicians, whatever you want to call it, this kind of growing collective of people who were grouping around this idea to Bosnia, invited by a, a woman who was part of an effort to start after school activities for children in post-war Bosnia. And whether we would come and perform at their opening of their program in Sarajevo. And somehow, and I still don't know how, uh, we pulled the money together to do it. We all got on a bus at five in the morning to drive to Frankfurt, where we could take a cheap flight <laughs> to, to Bosnia and, um, and ended up there also, besides performing for this opening, we ended up in a refugee camp where there were you know, people living in tents in the mud. This was December and managed to get children to uh, join in a, in, in a percussion workshop and get people to dance and could, you know, found a few musicians there. So it sort of grew in that way. And we started making contact with people. And, you know, the first few years, it sort of went that way. But within another six months, we were touring through the region with 17 musicians in, in a touring car. And um, meeting people and participating in festivals. There were festivals for peace that we joined in Macedonia and in Bosnia. We traveled through Kosovo. The year after that, we were invited by a peace organization to join a visit to Kosovo. We met rock musicians there who were looking for ways of working with young people. It grew organically, as you can hear. Yeah. It sounds like a story of learning on your feet, thinking and acting yes. on your feet, organic yes. growth responding to need, almost definitely on a shoestring. and must have been just overwhelming sometimes being in those communities um, with those people who've been through such awful experiences. It was overwhelming and it was also it also gave a lot of I could say satisfaction in the sense of and a lot of musicians who came with us professional musicians also said Yona, now I'm really seeing why I became a musician. This is why I became a musician, to see the impact that making music can have on people who have lost everything. And to, to get that joy coming back at you, to see the passion in people's eyes, or even just the kind of bit of encouragement, you know, if it's you know, a group of old women, I can remember who one of our singers was a, was, a, was a dance therapist, and she created a dance out of their motions and to see these women dancing together and moving together and the smiles these kind of shy smiles that started you know it, there were a lot of risks and there were and it was very uncertain there's a there's a wonderful um, writer and uh, teacher named John Paul Lederach who's a professional peacemaker teacher professor but also somebody who's um, actually been involved in negotiations to uh, and actual wars in a number of places around the world. And he writes very often about the artistic imagination and the need for artistic thinking in peace building. 
And he talks about, if, if you're really serious about peace building and reconciliation, one of the things you really need to have is the ability to, as he puts it, expect the unexpected, which is what artists are always doing. Absolutely. And, and looking back on this whole history, I think, well, that was all we were doing, <laughs> <laughs> expecting the unexpected and getting it and having to respond to it. And, you know, I can remember one time when we were on that bus trip, it was in the year 2000, the summer of 2000, and we were trying to cross the border, it would have been from Montenegro into Croatia, and we were stopped on the top of a mountain, that was the, the, the place where the border was, and, and the border guards were, you know, we had a lot of instruments in the bus which had been donated, which we were kind of giving away as we went when we met musicians who needed them or people who had projects with children and didn't have enough instruments and so forth. But the border guards were clearly planning to get some money out of this. And so we're searching everything. And we had somebody from the region who spoke the language and he came in at a certain point. We were all sitting in the bus and he said, you know, it's not going to work, Laura. We're going to have to pay money to get through here. And at a certain point, I thought, wait a minute, Lebiuro, that's a beautiful Croatian song. And most of the people in the group knew it. I said, okay, everybody remember Lebiuro? Let's sing it through once. We sang it through once in the bus. I said, okay, everybody out of the bus. He said, our guy said, no, I wouldn't do that. I don't think it's right. I said, everybody out of the bus, smile, go and stand in front of the customs hut. And we're going to sing Lebiuro. And as we, we start the song and you see all these border guards well up. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, and I have a picture of that hanging on my office wall that moment. And at the end, they're all wiping the tears off their cheeks. Welcome to Croatia. Come in. You're welcome. You know. That's <laughs> incredible. In your, in your report, you actually describe music as the ultimate expression of human connectivity. And that's a beautiful example of that, isn't it? You, you say, I'll quote you because I thought it was lovely, beyond entertainment, beyond fame, beyond arbitrary scales of personal talent. And it's so important to talk in those terms about music, isn't it? And to use examples of where music just totally breaks down barriers. Yes, um, yes. You know, you know, music has been, I think this is one of the things that's interesting in this period of, of, of COVID and of revelations of what's going on, the issues of, the, if you think about the Black Lives Matter movement that has so grown in this period and the revelations of injustice around the world, which have so been magnified. And to me, one of the, the crucial things about understanding what music is or can be is to understand the ways in which music has become a kind of a product in our societies. It's, it's, it's kind of a thing, uh -huh. you know? It's, it's seen as something that's external, that you have to learn, that you have to study, that you get judged on how proficient you are according to arbitrary standards made by somebody, um, that you either get to be a, a great star or you get to aspire to be a great star or you're sort of relegated to being an amateur, which means not very good, or you know, all of these kind of ways of categorizing and judging and commodifying music. And yeah. to me, the two pieces of what art does that are that are so essentially human is for one thing it connects people it's something that everybody can do and it builds community it connects you it, it strengthens empathy it's possible for everyone to make music at some level and the second thing is that the arts are there to hold up a mirror and mm -hmm. to be critical and to say something about who we are and where we are 
and how we can, what we need to be better and to look critically at our time. And exactly those two parts of music to me get left out so often. They certainly do. And those two parts of music are coming to the fore in this pandemic yes. um, period, really the, the importance of music in connecting people just beyond that whole thing about learning music as a skill and also yes. the, uh, holding up the mirror, uh, people becoming more aware of disadvantage and injustice. You've also spoken about the people that you work with you know, uncertainty is a reality. Um, the yes. pandemic has made us all in the wealthy areas of the world really feel that now. Hopefully it'll make us feel, have more empathy to people who face really unsettling experiences all the time, the sort of people that you work with. So we were talking about the sort of musicians that you, this band of happy musicians that you pulled into a car and kind of drove across Europe. Um, you also mentioned about, you know, yours and their ability to be flexible, to adapt. And I'm always really impressed by that in, in musicians and artists, both in that kind of bravery and, and also that ability to think on the feet adapt be flexible in the face of quite unusual situations sometimes in your case quite traumatic situations but even in um you know a school an unusual situation with a child behaving in in a certain way you know some of the best music leaders are the ones that can just think oh i don't need the nasan pan i'm going to respond to this person as a person mm -hmm. and that sort of brings me on to i wanted to talk a little bit about your practice if i can Mm -hmm. obviously sure. this must have evolved hugely over the years and at the beginning I'm guessing you brought together musicians who you knew who you felt had the the sort of right values and behaviors I guess but yeah. maybe weren't necessarily trained community musicians or trained music therapists so I'm really interested to hear about how you evolved your practice and how you have developed the musicians that you work with. So you're absolutely right. Uh, in, in the beginning, the musicians, and actually it's still kind of true, the musicians who joined, often they came of their own because they'd heard about it and there was something in what we were doing that spoke to their condition. I guess you could say that. Mm -hmm. um, I think in many cases, these were people who had on their own developed ways of working, which were inclusive and which were joyful and which made children feel safe rather than criticized. Mm. And, you know, some of the first ones were musicians who had been working in um, Amsterdam public schools where I can remember in like in the early 90s, more than 60% of the children in the Amsterdam school system were of non-Dutch ethnic background. So, and there were, and a lot of children were rather recent immigrants or, you know, so there was, Working in, in an inclusive way and in sometimes using nonverbal ways of, of working with children was a way of leveling the field and encouraging children to participate and to develop. And it, and it sort of enlarged the understanding about what music education could be and what it could mean within an educational system that was, that was also struggling to accommodate to a very diverse um, student population. And it happened that I knew some of these people and through my work with all the different varieties of music from around the world, um, I had also met musicians who were also doing teaching as part of this and they, they had brought African drumming into the school system or, or um, Indian dance or you know, different forms of music. So there was a kind of a, a group of people to draw on. And you know, I think in a lot of what we've done, both in terms of the people who, well, 
People have joined us. It's been often like that. For the last five years, we've been offering what we call trainings of trainers, where musicians from around the world come for um, a week or six days, something like that, and work intensively together with our trainers. And what we're really intending to do is to share what we've learned over the years in ways that make it possible for people to take what, what we can offer bring in what they have to offer and take that back to their own communities. But of course, we also kind of watch out for people who participate and say, oh, that one might be actually a very good trainer for us. So actually, in that sense, choosing people or finding the right people has always been a kind of an instinctive thing. It's just that it's usually not me anymore who does it. And in terms of sort of developing a technique, that's also in the same way often been kind of retrospective. You know, we were at a certain point after we'd done a couple of years of these sort of exchanges in the Balkans and we connected with a young woman who had gone to uh, work as a volunteer in um, Srebrenica right after the, well, that was the scene of the genocide in 1995 and a so-called ethnically cleansed population. So different Serb kids were in the town and the Muslim Bosniak kids were mostly in villages or in refugee camps. And um, she wanted to do something that was more structural and we supported her in that and that became our first long-term project. And then she decided being there, well, I really should involve some local musicians and dancers. And then we thought, well, we could send this person and that person who can teach them to do this and that. And so that, be, that was the beginning of our work in training people. And then after we'd done that for a few years, we thought, well, maybe we should actually make a book, uh, a manual with some of the songs we've taught, some of the ways of approaching people. How do you do this? How do you do that? Body percussion. So we were really basically describing what we'd been developing. And then a couple of years later, we thought, well, if we're training people, maybe we should know ahead of time what it is that we want them to be able to do by the end of a year, for example, and how do we structure that? So a lot of it was kind of, well, learning as we go and codifying or, or formalizing the work as we were learning from it ourselves. And actually, that process continues today. I mean, that we're, we now have all of these things. We have training modules, we have, but we're constantly reformatting them. And we're constantly looking to say, well, what would fit here? And what can we draw on that this place needs? And then a couple of years ago, we thought, well, we, we really should have, or we were told by a couple of our donors, we need to see your theory of change. So it, also there, it was a question of, basically looking back, well, what have we done? What do we see there? What are the, the issues that we're trying to deal with? And how could you crystallize this into a number of words that would fit on one paper? And through that whole process, we, 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 we were able to sort of define what we call our five principles within our community music work, um, which really refer back to I, I guess you would say the interconnection of the two basic threads of Musicians Without Borders, which is the connecting power of music, and I would say the principles of nonviolence, which I see as our conscience, you could say. Just for people who are listening who are sort of feeling drawn to your organisation, you do have training available every so often during the year um, that they can take part in. Well, normally, yes. At this point, um, the the live trainings have been suspended, but we have trainings at three levels. We have a two-day introductory training. 
We have a four-day training in workshop leadership techniques, and we have a six-day training of trainers where we're often using the same kind of material, but at three different levels, you could say. So in that last one, we're not training people how to work with participants in a classroom, but we're training people how to train others to do this in their own environment. So you're also looking at the, the situation in which each of the participants is working and how can we understand these approaches within your system. So that's one element of training. And, then I, and I hope we're going to be able to start that again in February. We're, we've also been developing a number of online training options, but the whole training of trainers isn't, isn't there. That's a, that's a really physical encounter. And I hope that we're going to be able to do that again soon. Absolutely. I can imagine it wouldn't be the same doing that online at all. You do have a training manual, don't you, that I think is freely available as well on your website? I think that's an old one, actually. Ah, we, right. Okay. That's a, it, that was version two. Uh, it gives a really good <laughs> sense of, of your kind of pedagogy there, then. And that's sort of what, something that I wanted to go on to ask. It sounds to me um, not from necessarily just what you, you've said today, but actually what I've read, that it, your practice seems to be a, a combination of community music and music therapy. Would you say that that's the right way of describing it? Or, or can you tell me a little bit about your actual practice? Sure. Music therapy, a couple of times we've had actual music therapy. Uh, we, one, of our, one of our program managers is a music therapist. He set up the first music therapy post in Rwanda while he was also managing that program. But in general, most of the people who work with us are not music therapists, and we don't describe it that way. Mm -hmm. What we do, well, we work from five guiding principles in, in our community music training program. Also, just to say that that's not the only thing that we do as Musicians Without Borders, the, the community music. But within that, um, we've identified five principles that we follow, and they are safety is number one, mm -hmm. inclusion, equality, creativity and quality. And those are kind of the pillars of the trainings that we do. And around those pillars, we design the training within our projects based on what's needed. So for example, we've been working for the last three years almost in El Salvador, where at the request of UNICEF El Salvador and their Ministry of Education, We've been training about 100 music teachers, school music teachers, and cultural leaders who work with children with the goal of finally helping to protect children from the impact of violence on their lives. Much of the country is basically run by violent gangs, mm -hmm. and um, many children live in neighborhoods which are run by violent gangs. Many children are recruited into gangs. There is a culture of violence. This is also a culture that relates back to the 12-year-long civil war, which was never really resolved. There was never really any procedure for justice, for truth and reconciliation. It was just kind of stopped. But the, this, this history of war is there. So within that context, then a lot of the, the training that we're doing is about how do you, using these five principles, the safety, inclusion, and so forth, how do you create an environment within your music classroom where children feel safe, where they feel included, where they feel honored, where you're growing a kind of what we would call a culture of nonviolence, using your musical skills to do that. That becomes the, the, the formative question in that project. In another project in Rwanda, for example, there we're working in collaboration with an HIV clinic. And there we've been training young people who are themselves affected by HIV 
to work with children from that clinic. And there you're, you're dealing with questions of marginalization, exclusion, stigma, dealing with the impact of, of a disease, and behind all of that, the history of a genocide in a country where everybody lives with that history and that inheritance. So that becomes a quite different kind of a format. I mean, but we still base that on those five principles. Every, every project can be very different. If you look at our work in, especially in the Balkans, in Kosovo and now in Macedonia, there we're working in ethnically divided neighborhoods. In, we started in, I think, Europe's most ethnically divided city in northern Kosovo, Mitrovica. And this was a town that before the war there had a very vibrant rock and roll culture. Um, it's an industrial town and a lot of garage bands and kids teaching kids. And that whole culture disappeared during the war, as did rock music as kind of the voice of youth. So there our project was to set up a, a rock music school where young people from the two different sides of this ethnically divided city could meet each other in mixed bands and work together based on their shared passion for rock music. So that's a very different model. But again, you have to make sure that people feel safe. You have to make sure that people feel included, that they're welcome, that their creativity is encouraged. So this gives us a kind of a framework to see our work, however different the specific context and history and immediate issues are, you can see these within a framework of using music for, you know, I sometimes say kind of sowing the seeds of a peaceful society or sowing the seeds of, of inclusion and connection across borders or, or within communities. Or This idea of safety and trust is so important in working with people generally, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I think that music tutors often are the people that young people really look to for that safety and trust when they don't have that in their family background, possibly. Yep. It can be the music tutors who create that safe environment. Sometimes they're the only people that some young people might trust or the people that they look to as mentors or role models. Musicians can have such an important role in society, can't they? I'm particularly interested in the idea of safety and trust relating to your work around trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that that's a little bit of the part of your practice. I don't know if you actually train people People to have an understanding of the impact of, of trauma on the nervous system and how they can work with that in, in their music work. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, one of our trainers uh, is Darren Abrahams, who, whom yes. I believe you've met also. And Darren is himself a, a trained musician, a, 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 had a career in opera as a tenor, and then also retrained and went back and is also a trauma therapist. And Darren has worked with, uh, within our training team to develop a, a module which has become very central to all of our work, really, which is about music and the nervous system. And we are not, except for Darren, none of us is a trauma therapist. I think one of the things that many people grapple with who, who work in situations with marginalized people is understanding what the impact of trauma is, but also understanding the limitations of that concept for somebody who isn't specialized in it. Mm. And understanding also that one of the most important things is for the practitioner to be able to regulate 
their own nervous system. Yes. So that's a lot of this training module is for one thing about understanding what happens when somebody has been through a traumatic event and is not able to handle what happened in a way in which to re-regulate you could say, because we all have periods where, we're, where, we're, where our nervous system gets deregulated by a very unpleasant experience. And the question is, well, what's the impact when your body is, has not been able to sort of get itself back into balance again? So sort of understanding how that works so that you are better equipped to work in situations where people may have experienced traumatic events. But Maybe in some ways, even more important, recognizing that for one thing, that people living in so-called safe areas are not exempt from having had traumatic experiences. They're Absolutely. way wider spread than we often think. The first stories I remember Darren telling was that when he spent some time in Calais in the what was then called the jungle, the very large refugee settlement, fully expecting to see you know residents who were exhibiting signs of trauma. And he said, where I saw actually the most signs of trauma weren't among the refugees; it was among the the volunteers who'd come to help. Mm. And so, recognizing within oneself the need to take care of your own response to stress and the need for yourself to be safe. You are trying to create a space where people feel safe with your music making. You have to watch out that you yourself are safe. You have to watch out for your own regulation. And sometimes just being that safety is the most important thing as a practitioner. And then also understanding how music can have a calming effect on people, on groups, how music can have a regulating effect and how to do that as a musician, not seeing oneself as a therapist because we're not, mm. as I said, except for Darren. It's such an important area of practice, I think, particularly as music is required more and more, for example, in music education, more and more to support young people in challenging circumstances. Often the musicians, the music tutors, community musicians who work with those young people, unlike music therapists, they might not have the supervision that music therapists have and the opportunity to talk about how they're feeling, how a young person made them feel and made them react. And that is really, really important in, in you being able to deliver your music work really well and support those young people, isn't it? It's, it's a yes. really important part of practice that can, can get overlooked. Yeah. We've also, in the last couple of years, we've also internalized that within our own organization. So we have two well-being counselors and it is structurally, it's expected that when people come back from a training, that they have not only a debrief with the project manager, but also a debrief with one of the well-being counselors, just to be able to process whatever it is that you've seen and participated in and heard. And we, and we make that possible for everybody within our organization as well. Because we understand that we're all, you know, we're all trying to save the world. We're all trying, to, you know, we're, we're out there and, and the job is so big and we're so small and, you know, and there's always much more work than there are people to do it. So the idea of internalizing that and um, trying to take care of each other is very important. And also, and I, I feel this very much as director of an organization, you know, people want to work so hard. And I also think, you know, we have a very international staff. Half of our, of our staff have family living in other countries. I think if you need to go, go. If you have a sick friend who's in the hospital, go. You know, if you're not feeling well, go home and rest. Let's not 
burn each other out. Let's take care of each other. We're not a shoe factory, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's that so many arts organizations end up becoming a bit like that because people are passionate about their work, aren't they? They do really care about it, but often they do suffer from burnout and that doesn't help anybody. It's amazing to hear that your organization is considering that so deeply and offering that support. I think it's incredibly important that we that we hold on to each other and that we see ourselves also as a community. I mean, because people are so isolated in many ways and separated from each other. And that was true before Corona, of course, you know, I mean, the individualization of our societies. And if we're really about social change, I think we have to be the try to be the change that we want to see as well and not try to overwork people. And, and not this idea, this kind of from our industrialized capitalist societies that you always have to be producing, producing. You know, I have people used to laugh at me when we were in the office and, you know, we, our office was, faces a, a beautiful garden. And um, I could often be found standing next to the window, you know, looking for the parrots or <laughs> staring at the birds or, you know, because there's things going on in your head and processing and, and having ideas and thinking. And those are important parts. I think, you know, I think I said something earlier about the, yeah, we talked about the commodification of the arts and of music. It's one of the things, if we're talking about social change, if we're talking about really going to the deep values that are important, most important in human existence and as defining ourselves as dwellers on this shared planet. It's about caring for all the aspects of being human, not just for working, not just for producing. And I think if anything, we work too hard. I couldn't so, agree um, more with what you're saying about this absolute obsession with being productive. And we all suffer from that. Partly sometimes it's because we care, but partly it's because society has influenced us to be producers, not creators. And hopefully that will change. I mean, the pandemic has made us all think really deeply, hasn't it? It's given us time. Um, no matter how busy we've been through the pandemic. We're, I've got so many questions more for you, Laura, and it's been fascinating talking with you. We're running out of time, so I'm going to have to, to wrap up. But I wanted to, to finish by asking you if you could give us either three sort of practical pieces of advice for either musicians who want to do the sort of work that you do or um, make the sort of change that you, you make, or maybe three calls to action for others working in Music for Change. You know, I read through your questions, which you kindly shared with me ahead of time. And this was the one that I really didn't know how to answer. <laughs> I, I mean, it's probably the best one also. But I mean, I guess one of the things that has been going through my mind so much in these last months is the inability to know where everything is going. And I guess for me, the most important things are to be brave you know, to be courageous, to work, to work together, to form more alliances, to be open to, to working with others. And I think also we talk about music and change. We need to reach out to others who are active in the area of social change, not only the musicians, other artists, other, um, other activists, because I think we're, you know, a pandemic is a portal. This was so beautifully written by Arundhati Roy in a, in a column about this period. You know, these global pandemics are always, they always usher in new things. And as humans, we have choices. How are we going to walk through that portal? 
and what's going to come out and is it going to be more of the same is it going to be more of business as usual is it going to be or or can we actually be the agents of real change and deep change and i don't mean just bringing nice music activities to people who need it i mean seeing that within the context of the shift of consciousness that we need to arrive at as human beings in order to save our planet and and to continue the existence of the human race. So I think maybe the answer to your question is to, to think in the global perspective, really to think in the planetary perspective and to see our arts and our music as this amazing quality that we have, this amazing part of being human that can hold up the mirror and that should be holding up the mirror, that can connect to people and should be connecting to people and not just in our rhetoric, but actual in our work. Wow. I thought you said you couldn't answer that question. That's amazing. It's really, <laughs> um, really thought provoking, really inspiring. Thank you, Laura. And thank you so much for making the time to chat to me today. All those years ago, when I first started hearing about your work, um, I never thought I'd be speaking with you. Um, so it's been wonderful. And I really hope Musicians Without Borders continues to go from strength to strength, despite these really difficult times all across the world right now. Um, Thank you, Anita. I think, you know, if we can manage to continue that artistic way of thinking, you know, that learning, that organic growing, and what I said, expecting the unexpected, which is really, I think, to me, that's the core of being artistic, being creative, is expecting the unexpected. And I think if we can do that, we'll keep going. And I wish that for all colleagues around the world. Oh, thank you. That's so true. If you want to read more about Musicians Without Borders, I'll share the link to their website and resources and case studies in the show notes. And thank you for listening. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. And make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.